Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times is what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, unanswered questions in the post office scandal. Why would the structures of our society, be they legal or political, incapable of saving citizens from prosecution at the hands of their employer, leading at best to the loss of their livelihoods and at worst being sent to jail? There's a statutory inquiry at the moment into the affair, which saw more than 700 sub-postmasters and mistresses convicted between 2000 and 2014, when faulty software known as Horizon made it look as though money had gone missing from post office branches. An independent group of parliamentarians and academics has now asked for all the convictions to be overturned. We're going to hear in a moment from Nick Wallace, author of the great post office scandal who has covered this story for many, many years. Before we do, though, just a reminder that the Byline Times podcast is funded by subscriptions to the Byline Times. That's our brilliant monthly newspaper, which includes the best of our online articles and features you can't read anywhere else. If you're interested in taking out a subscription, and I would encourage you strongly to do so, and maybe even buy one as a present for Christmas, head over to bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Welcome then to uh, Nick Wallace. How are you doing, Nick? You're right. Hi, Adrian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to speak to you. And of course, we always say that this podcast is about what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report, etc. It's difficult with this story because, of course, you've been all over the BBC and other news outlets with your wonderful coverage of the post office scandal. But it just strikes me that there are perhaps some features of it that are worth greater investigation, perhaps around the failures of our political system, the failures of our legal system to protect ordinary people. Yeah, this scandal takes in political parties of all three stripes. The Horizon IT system was tendered by a Conservative government. It was rolled out under Tony Blair's administration in the late 90s, early 2000s, and then the Liberal Democrat coalition administration with the Conservatives in 2010 to 2015. Basically, the Liberal Democrats were running the business department, which owns or is the golden shareholder in the post office on behalf of the taxpayer throughout the period when the cover-up began. And the government knowledge of and involvement in that cover-up has yet to be properly explored by the ongoing public inquiry. And then we had a succession of business ministers under the current Conservative administration who did pretty much nothing until their hand was forced by the courts to recognise what a disastrous injustice it was. And even after the courts revealed this, the government was fighting tooth and nail. I think perhaps the civil servants within government rather than the politicians themselves were fighting tooth and nail to try and make this all go away and resisting the setting up of a statutory inquiry. So there has been political failure across the board with this scandal. Of course, the post office was and is publicly owned, but the Horizon software programme was sold to it by a private company, by Fujitsu. So to what extent is this whole scandal the result of privatisation, the result of outsourcing? The tender for the Horizon system was under a private finance initiative programme and it was really, really badly tendered. It wasn't properly specced before the billion pound tender went out. And Fujitsu, the Japanese IT giant, which won the contract, 
scored amongst the lowest in terms of its ability to deliver it. There was a beauty parade, as you'd expect for something this size, in the mid to late 90s when the contract was tendered. Fujitsu scored, I think, bottom in eight out of the 11 scoring criteria when it came to who should win the contract. And yet it was awarded it largely because it transferred most of the business risk onto itself. And yet within months of the contract being awarded, the contract had to be renegotiated. And by the time the Horizon system was rolled out, the entire business risk had been lumped back onto the government because otherwise there was simply no way that this system was ever going to work. So there were failures in involving the private sector from the off. But the blame, I think, lies in the way that the contract was tendered. And there are huge questions as to whether a centrally important piece of software and hardware should ever have been entrusted wholly to the private sector. But in terms of its management, and in terms of the post office, which is wholly owned by the government, there is evidence of incredibly poisonous, sclerotic, and inefficient malicious, indifferent behaviour by people who are effectively civil servants. And this runs like a theme throughout the entire scandal and is entirely the responsibility of the public sector run post office and the people it employed and the way it went about its business. Yeah, so in a sense then, it's a failure both of the public sector and of the private sector. I just want to unpack both of those, Nick. Firstly, when you talk about the risk being taken initially by Fujitsu, who were the company who developed or sold this Horizon software, how, having taken the risk upon themselves, did they then manage to transfer it back onto the state and therefore to the taxpayer? Well, initially, the Horizon IT system had two clients. It was known as the Pathway Project. And when Pathway, which was the company that Fujitsu set up to win the tender, the DWP was a co-sponsor of the project alongside the post office. And the reason for this was because the DWP was moving away from paper benefit books to a card swipe system. And it wanted every benefit claimant and recipient to come into the post office, have their card swiped, and that would tally back at the DWP and they would get their benefits paid and it would apparently take millions of pounds of fraud out of the system. There was a lot of paper benefit book fraud going on in the early 90s. Very, very late in the day, the DWP decided to walk away. They wanted to move towards a model of having benefit claimants being paid directly into their bank accounts. Now, this was anathema to the post office because it looked like they were going to lose 30% of their footfall overnight, which of course they needed to maintain their business model. But the DWP ran the figures and just decided that, well, why should they subsidise a different government department? Their responsibility was to itself. And Fujitsu were going to get paid for every single card swipe that was made by a benefit claimant in a post office. That was the original business model. So the whole system was essentially set up to allow the automation of DWP payments through the post office. It would have the side effect of automating all post office systems, but the actual payment would come to Fujitsu per card swipe. And it took on all the risk of setting up and rolling out the system and would only start getting paid 
when the system functioned effectively and those card swipes started happening. After the DWP walked away from the project, which was late in 1998, early 1999, the whole contract was potentially in danger of being terminated because the commercial incentive or imperative behind it had collapsed. One of the sponsors had walked away and someone was going to have to fund this. And there was a high-level meeting between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair in April 1999, in which Gordon Brown suggested that the most rational option would be to can the whole project. But there were so many political considerations, not least it probably would have meant Fujitsu's UK arm collapsing and going into administration, that Tony Blair decided the best thing to do would be to keep the Horizon project alive, but the entire contract had to be renegotiated. Fujitsu saw its opportunity, dived in and got the best possible terms it could, which included just being basically paid to run the thing once it started being rolled out from 1999 onwards. So there was an ideological commitment to maintaining some kind of private contractor on this particular project and not necessarily it just was we've come so far down the line we've spent so much money they've nearly got this system working let's see if they can get this system working and rolled out because any further delay if we re-tendered this into the private sector or decided to bring it in-house it would inevitably cost hundreds of millions of pounds more and delay the automation of the post office with potentially catastrophic consequences So was that failure then, or the delay, which eventually gave the post office time to change its mind on the rollout, was that because it was a poorly designed scheme? Was Fujitsu, in getting the contract, being rewarded for its failure? Yes, in a word. They could not get the system to work. Basically, and we've got evidence of this, which has come out of the inquiry and from a whistleblower who I spoke to for my book, They won the contract on the basis of a prototype. And apparently what you should do once you've won the the contract on the basis of a prototype, you throw that prototype out and you start again from scratch, knowing that you've now got the funding to build a large scale model. And Fujitsu didn't do that. They just kept building upon this really, really bad piece of code, which wasn't fit for purpose. And right up until the wire, they could not get the system to work. The accounting integrity of the Horizon system was called into question after the post office accepted it into the estate in internal Fujitsu documents with recommendations that the cash accounting programme, which was at the heart of the Horizon system, should be rewritten. But that proposal was dismissed and the Horizon team decided that they were going to try and fix it on the fly as it was being rolled out and operated in the post office estate. This, of course, had catastrophic consequences for individual sub-postmasters who were working with a system that they were told worked but didn't and were then held liable for the consequent gaps and discrepancies which arose in their branch accounts. And I'll talk about those sub-postmasters and mistresses in a moment, Nick. I don't want to forget them, but people who are perhaps familiar with this story will have heard many of the very sad accounts of people who were affected by this. But I just want to reflect as well on what you described as the sclerotic public servants who were implicated in this as well, because we've highlighted quite rightly the failures of the private firm Fujitsu. Why was the public sector and how was the public sector sclerotic in this, in your view? Well, the post office was formally taken out of the government as a department of government in, I think, the late 80s with the abolishing of the position of postmaster general. 
and it subsequently became a limited company and was run as an arm's length body inside the Royal Mail by the government. So Royal Mail Group Limited had Royal Mail, which was the deliveries business. It had the post office, which was the counter business, and it had Parcel Force. And I think it was set up as a limited company with a view to spinning all of these out into the private sector eventually. That's what happened to Parcel Force. That's what happened in 2012 to the Royal Mail. But the post office remained a public sector organisation or public sector owned organisation. And there is an awful lot of speculation as to why uh, the government has never been able to get rid of it, partly because it's not profitable and partly because the problems within it, I think, have been recognised or were internally quietly recognised by government as something that would have to be dealt with before it could possibly be sold off. So what you've got with the post office is a 300-year-old organisation which has got its own investigation team, which is older than the police force. The actual body of the post office is older than the Union of England and Scotland. It's older than Great Britain itself. And it has its very ancient stuck-in-the-mud ways of dealing with things, which have never really changed pretty much since the Victorian era. And this was brought home to me when I was sitting in the initial group litigation trial at the High Court from 2018 through 2019, watching the post office witnesses who were there to give evidence. To a man and woman, they had given a minimum of 10 years service to the post office. Many were in their third or fourth decade of service to the post office. And once more with this public inquiry, all the post office witnesses giving evidence have served for 20 plus years. The majority of them seem to have started either as counter clerks or posties, with a small number maybe starting as a trainee solicitor. And they've all given decades worth of service to the post office. And to that extent, it breeds a certain amount of loyalty to the brand of the post office. And creates an environment where they are dependent on the brand of the post office to give them their identity. They believe that they are good people. They believe the post office is a good organisation. They cannot hear or do anything against the culture of the post office. And they will put their reputations on the line for the post office way of doing things because that's all they know. There is no or not enough transference of culture and processes from the outside world, which effectively allowed the post office to completely ossify in terms of its way of going about things and left it stuck in a different century, which was also culturally aligned to its institutional distrust of its own sub-postmasters. Sub-postmasters were only ever taken on in the post office on sufferance. The way the post office was organised in the Victorian era meant that you had individual postmasters who had responsibility for the collection and delivery of mail in any given region. But with the great expansion of the railways and the amount of business simply being done between Britain's great industrial cities, there was a huge demand for the transference of mail, which the post office couldn't cope with. So it started to employ sub-postmasters. These would be people who weren't paid by the state, but would take on the office of the state by having a uniform and a post office counter and a post office sign outside their branch. And they would handle the post office's business as agents of the post office. And these were seen as sort of vaultingly ambitious lower middle class shopkeepers who the post office had to take on on sufferance 
in order to allow its business to continue to operate effectively. But they were seen as a different class of people and not to be trusted with public money. And so this punitive approach of the post office of never quite trusting these postmasters, but having to because they conducted the post office's business, carried on all the way through into the Horizon scandal, all the way through into the 21st century. So when the Horizon system was rolled out and these discrepancies started appearing in sub-postmasters' accounts and the post office finally had visibility on it because it now had an automated system which it could look into and see these transactions taking place, the assumption wasn't that there might be something wrong with the system. It was immediately that they'd caught these thieving sub-postmasters red-handed. And so that, that is a very long explanation as to how and why this curious, ossified public sector beast was capable of so much malign indifference and malevolence towards its own staff, because they didn't ever quite trust its own staff, particularly the ones who were acting as agents for it rather than its actual employees. And we have all heard, I'm sure, many sad stories of those who were wrongly convicted of stealing money from the post office. What are your reflections on the people that you have met who were innocent victims of this awful scandal? Well, the ridiculous thing about this is that sub-postmasters represent some of the very best qualities of human beings that you could ever expect to meet. They are public-spirited. They are public-facing. They are hard-working. They're entrepreneurial. They go out of their way to look after their customers far beyond you'd expect a normal retailer to ever do. They were the censors of their community and they enjoyed that visible role. They are proud people and they are trusting people. They trusted in the brand of the post office to do good by them. And yet when the post office turned on them, it created this awful psychological trauma to them because their supposed trusted business partner had now decided that they were guilty of theft and needed to be prosecuted as a result. And so these trusting individuals who wouldn't dream of kicking up a fuss in any normal environment or situation, then started to put their trust and faith in the criminal justice system. They said, well, obviously someone's got something wrong here at the post office, but obviously the British trusty values of fair play and justice will ensure that I'm completely exonerated. And they got done over by the criminal justice system as well. And the trauma that this has visited on so many individuals and their families is just heartbreaking to see firsthand because these are proud individuals who just wanted to make a living and serve their communities. And they were absolutely steamrolled by, first of all, an arm of the state in the post office and then by the criminal justice system to the extent that they were broken, bankrupt, destitute, unable to find a way to provide for themselves or their children in later life. And many have gone to their graves in that way. As the public inquiry has unfolded, there has been evidence that I've seen which makes me question whether this was just a case of a poor software system an ossified administration, as you describe it, of the post office, or whether at some point this tips over into malice, at some point whether this even tips over into potential criminality in that people were pursued who, in all objective fairness, could not be seen to have stolen from the post office. 
think there are two points here. I think there is low-level malice. There is absolutely no doubt amongst the auditors and investigators and potentially the prosecutors who went after sub-postmasters who had discrepancies in their accounts. Don't forget the post office, because they had their own investigation arm and their own prosecutors, were able to bypass the police and the CPS in their route to the criminal courts, which put them in the unusual position of being victim, investigator and prosecutor of a specific crime and all the conflict of interest that that raises. It's worth just noting there, Nick, that I think many people might not realise this, but the post office as an institution did have a, a specific privileged position which gave it that access to the legal system. Well, yes, it inherited it. It was almost part of its setup. But any organisation can criminally prosecute someone. You could personally criminally prosecute me if you thought I'd committed a crime. But the point is the post office had the resources to do so and the cultural willingness to do so and the historic ability to do so. So that's what allowed it to maintain that kind of position. It was not specifically privileged, but because it had the resources and the desire and the will to operate its business model on that basis. And there is an investigation to be had about the growing number of private prosecutions by corporations against individuals. But on the specific case of the post office, they had this power, which they abused. At a low level, they had this cultural loathing and distrust of sub-postmasters, which allowed the investigators against all prosecutorial codes to assume guilt without perhaps looking at all the options in the round. But at a higher level, the malice, I think, came in when it became apparent that the post office had a problem on its hands. The campaign by the Justice for Sub-Postmasters Alliance and the pressure from MPs had forced it to undergo an independent examination of not just the Horizon system, but its own business processes. And that independent examination run by a firm called Second Sight, who were invited into the post office by the post office, but saw as its clients, the post office, the campaigners and MPs, to do a proper examination of the system, found that things had gone horrendously wrong on a number of levels. And when their report was published, all hell broke loose within the post office, which went into damage limitation mode, including doing everything it possibly could to stop the scale of this scandal growing and in doing so prevented innocent people who it had prosecuted and seen convicted from having access to the ability to appeal their convictions, which were theirs by right under human rights legislation. So... There was knowledge within the government at the highest level within the post office that they were undertaking a cover-up exercise. And that is what is going to be unravelled in the public inquiry in 2024. And without naming names, do you think then that there is the potential for a criminal case to be brought against either senior people in the post office or senior politicians? Right. So I am cynical and I've seen how many scandals there have been in public life where the perpetrators get away completely scot-free when it comes to criminal prosecutions. I mean, if you look at Grenfell, if you look at Windrush, if you look at Hillsborough, if you look at the Midstaff's NHS scandal, if you look at the infected blood scandal, how many people have been criminally charged with doing horrendous harm to individuals and being convicted as a result. I think there is one health and safety successful conviction 
of someone who worked for Sheffield Wednesday with regard to the Hillsborough disaster. I don't think you can name any other successful criminal prosecution with regard to any of those scandals. And I'd add the banking crisis into that as well. So the precedents are not good. But Lord Arbuthnot, who is a long-term campaigner for sub-postmasters, who now sits on the Horizon Compensation Advisory Board, has said explicitly he is certain that there was a criminal conspiracy to pervert the course of justice at the post office when it became apparent that they had been responsible or likely been responsible for dozens of miscarriages of justice. And so we've seen already witnesses at the public inquiry being given the self-incrimination warning by the chair of the inquiry, which is, should they be asked a question which they think might incriminate them, they have the right not to answer it. And that has not yet been exercised by any witness. But the number of people who've been given that warning, which is only given if they are under investigation or likely to be under investigation by the police, has, I think, reached double figures. So there is a nexus of decision makers within the post office who sought to essentially make this scandal go away by covering it up, who can now, I think, legitimately be asked very, very serious questions by the prosecuting authorities. But I go back to my first point, which is that I simply don't think it will happen because that's not the way this country works. But presumably you think it should? Listen, there is now so much scrutiny of this scandal and day by day, its visibility within public discourse seems to increase. I mean, everyone who studied it for more than two hours comes away absolutely aghast at what has happened, both in terms of the false prosecution of sub-postmasters and the subsequent cover-up. So it may well be that the public and political pressure grows to the extent that Operation Olympus, which is the Metropolitan Police investigation, which has been ongoing since 2020, and which has to date only, as far as I'm aware, interviewed two people twice under caution. It may well be that the political pressure and the resourcing goes into Operation Olympus by the Met to actually get to a point where they think they can file criminal charges against individuals. But again, it's very, very difficult to make these charges stick because all these people can point to various other decision makers within the organisation who gave them assurances that they can perhaps suggest that they weren't acting in bad faith. I think it's going to be really interesting in 2024 to see the questioning of board level members of the post office, because if anyone should be prosecuted, it's the people who, when they realised they had an enormous potential scandal on their hands, decided the best thing was to go into what I describe as batshit denial mode and deny access to justice for the sub-postmasters for at least a further six years. And were it not for an extremely prescient judge in the High Court group litigation in 2018-2019 and a completely dedicated group of claimant lawyers and the postmasters themselves who had the wherewithal to put the funding together to try and make this case stick the government would have got away with it. And don't forget that the post office halfway through this trial decided to do a complete Hail Mary and try and get the judge thrown off the case, a decision that could only have been taken with the backing of government as a last ditch attempt to stop this scandal from coming out. So there are people within the government and the post office who did their level best to pervert the course of justice. No, there's no other way of putting it. And Conspiring to pervert the course of justice is a criminal offence. And so therefore, charges, I think, should be laid. But deciding who they should be laid against and whether they will ever stick is 
probably going to be the next five years of my career. <laughs> Listen, Nick, you've done fantastic work on this, and I'm really pleased that you've shared some of the story with us on the Byline Times podcast. Nick's book, The Great Post Office Scandal, is out now. It's been out for a while, but it's still worth reading if you want to understand the background of a case that I think, like Nick, resonates with Grenfell, with Hillsborough, and with the Daniel Morgan story, which we've covered here on many occasions on the Byline Times podcast. If you want to support our work, don't forget you can take out a subscription to the Byline Times newspaper. Just head over to bylinetimes.com. It is available now on selected newsstands, but if you can take out a subscription, maybe even buy one for a friend or a relative for Christmas, you'll be helping keep the podcast going as well. Get more details on subscriptions at bylinetimes.com. And this has been a We Bring Audio production for the Byline Times by me, Adrian Goldberg, and Harvey White in Birmingham. Thanks very much indeed. We'll see you again next time. Thanks for listening and uh, happy Christmas. Cheers now. Bye-bye.